It's Tuesday, October 7th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Mark Reith, and joining me in studio from Motley Fool Rule Breakers, Simon Erickson, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Michael Olson. Gentlemen, how's it going? Cheerio. Wow. Hey, Mark. Cheerio. That's that new British slang that all the kids are speaking, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Or, or is that Australian? I guess maybe it's both. You're you are now a UK advisor here yeah, at the Motley Fool. That's you need true. to know these things. Yeah, I I I I'm gonna go ahead and try and improve my sort of cultural aptitude. Or <laughs> we'd really appreciate that. Yeah, you know, we sorry. need we need more cultural yeah. aptitude mm-hmm. around here at the Fool. Yeah. Pretty lowbrow stuff. Uh, speaking of <laughs> lowbrow, man, some of the stocks we have on deck today just. Tough days, tough days across the board. Mm. Uh, let's get things started with SodaStream, a stock that has never been lower than it is today. Uh, it warned yesterday that third quarter revenue would fall very short of its estimates, um, mainly because of a slump in sales in the United States. What's going on with SodaStream? Have you guys bought any SodaStream products recently? Slash, do you know anybody who has? I sorry, Simon, do you want this? No, <laughs> I, I have not, and I think. <laughs> So there, there's kind of an interesting paradox here, which this is a business that you want to like, hmm. because provided they can get an installed base of those soda machines, there is a delightfully recurring revenue stream, classic razor blade, where you know people are buying the CO2 cartridges, they're buying the soda mix, and then you know that's very nice, very profitable. Hmm. However, they have gotten two things wrong. The first is they've tried to make this a mass market product, which it is not. They're spending a lot of money on trying to get into a lot of other places. And in turn, they are sacrificing profitability. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea here, you know, and, and this is sort of a broader problem for them, which is you ask yourself, are soda stream machines mission critical to my existence? Um, and the answer is a decided no. Um, I was looking at uh, an interesting bit before I walked in here, and I'm not entirely sure that the average consumer performs this calculus, but <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and say no. Just, yeah. Just wild and crazy. All right, hold on. Okay, there we go. Um, the economics are just not that attractive when you contemplate owning one of these things. So I was looking at the cost of a CO2 cartridge and mix, and this is the cheap mix. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go ahead and you can buy like the all natural stuff if you'd like on Amazon. Um, and the average cost of making a can of soda with SodaStream machine is thirty-eight cents. This weekend at my local Harris Teeter, I picked up three twelve packs of soda for thirteen dollars. That was on sale, mind you, but mm-hmm. I'm a savvy consumer. And the cost thirty-six cents per can. Um, hmm. And so you just have to ask yourself, how and why does this compel folks to adopt this machine? If that is the contemplation. Now, admittedly, that's not their target customer, but they've tried to make themselves into that. So I, I just, I don't know. I don't really understand it. Simon, every time we're in the studio, you and me, we're talking SodaStream. It Let's is continue. True. Uh, to continue with Mike's philosophical rant about SodaStream, uh, <laughs> it, it's interesting because this is a company that U.S. is the emerging market that they're trying to crack. Right. SodaStream's doing fine in Europe and Asia, but it's a U.S. market that saw a 55% decline in SodaStream machines last quarter. Um, I think that there's some confusion of, of how to market these things. Like, like Mike was saying, you know, one aspect of it was, hey, it's more, it's more price conscious if you have the machine itself. But as you pointed out, maybe it's not really more price conscious. The other angles that they've taken in the past was it's more eco-friendly. You know, you actually have a, a machine and, and, and you're not buying the cans from the, soda st- from the store all the time. Um, but that hasn't worked with consumers either. So now they're actually trying to push the health aspects. Right. 
And again, I, I think there's going to be some pushback on this because at the end of the day, these are still carbonated beverages. These are still cokes. It's not a so it's not a, a sports drink or a water. Well, I mean, like and moreover, you ask yourself the question: Do do U.S. consumers actually care about their health? Uh, when you look at the rate of diabetes in this country, ostensibly speaking, that's not the case. Yeah, um, but well, you look at the point. you look at the rate of diet soda sales over the last couple of years and how dramatically they've dropped. I mean, maybe this is the way to do it. I, I don't know. It, soda stream clearly needs to try something here. It, it, the bottom line for me on this. One, though, uh, Mark, is is this is a consumer-facing company branding and everything, and how you're mar- branding is everything, and how you're marketing yourself to this market is very important. Mm-hmm. I don't think Soderstrom's figured that out yet, but the thing that I'll definitely be watching is how system sales go during the all-important fourth quarter. Okay. Are these selling at Christmas time? If they are, and they're actually able to steer the ship right, then that's a really good sign. If they're not, that's a, that's a red flag. So right. we'll we'll see how that fourth quarter goes. You know, one interesting point to Mark. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> to Simon's point, which is to say that they they have this this problem where they have distribution, they're in all the major retailers, and yet they can't seem to figure out what it takes to sell these things. Right. I mean, I think the brightest point we were talking before in this company's history is the Scarlett Johansson marketing campaign. And, I agree. Yep. Yes. And, um, you know, they, they operate on a shoestring marketing budget. They basically have, like, I, I was talking with Brian White uh, before this, and they only have a couple million dollars in marketing. Um, and so if you're going to try and make this a mass market product, but you're only putting in a couple million dollars to marketing, um, you, you're faced with a decided challenge in, mm. in that regard. Absolutely. And speaking of challenges, let's talk about the container store, which is down uh, after reporting on Monday. Uh, profit was eh, okay, matched analysts' estimates, but uh, sales were way down. And looking forward, sales and profit outlook both dropped um, pretty dramatically. Yesterday's show, Jason mentioned the container store amongst some of the home goods companies he's keeping an eye on during earnings season. He said there was a lot of pressure on the store, and it seems like he was correct about that. Uh, where's the pressure coming from, Michael, and how does the container store contain that pressure. <laughs> yeah, so um, this is a hard one for the very simple fact that you know a lot of energy goes to um, extolling the virtues of their stakeholder-centric model. And surely there, there's a good bit of merit to this because if you treat your customers and your employees well, there is a virtuous cycle to that. I agree with that mentality. The problem or the thing I have difficulty wrapping my head around is um, – They've spoken to the store level economics and that they're able to recoup the investment within two and a half years. Um, it seems that the math employed here is a little specious. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about EBITDA margins, which, if you're a retailer, is basically uh, your profit before everything <laughs> because a lot of your investment in stores is in depreciation and amortization, the DNA part in EBITDA. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking at the store level economics for the trailing 12 months before I came in here, and that does not include the most recent quarter. But the average Best Buy, and we talked about this the last time they had a quarterly release, the average, I'm sorry, not Best Buy, but Bed Bath and Beyond, does $269 sales per square foot. Container, tour, container store, $644 per square foot. Um, the operating margins at Bed Bath and Beyond are 13.5%, and container store, they are 4.1%. Um, and and this, of course, comes as they are selling a very high-priced good and making great product-level margins. And I, I think you just have to ask yourself the question, um, this is a relatively, this, this is sort of a luxury item, it's non-recurring purchase, and certainly there are substitutes. And so I think more broadly, these struggles speak to 
the difficulty making this sort of a, a mass market item and growing into that potential. Another thing, another contemplation here is if you're to assume that the store level economics, which, which they've realized thus far, this sort of 3%, 4% operating margins are reflective, um, and they can get to their 300 store account, this is in fact not a particularly cheap stock if hmm. this is sort of the, the prevailing paradigm for them. Another interesting bit is I was looking at Auto Group, which they operate crate and barrel stores. Um, and they do about 3% operating margins, and they also have about 400 stores. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe, you know, you're compelled to ask the question, maybe that 10% that specialty retail uh, operating margin that they might endeavor to achieve, or mid-teens, is, is perhaps not as attainable. And instead, you know, if you're looking at them like, like a crate and barrel store, where this is not such a recurring purchase item, but it is a luxury good, mm -hmm. which has sort of a niche appeal, and maybe maybe the the cash generating potential is not really there. I think this is a a good business. Um, I don't know that this is necessarily a very attractive investment at these prices. Hmm. The one thing I'd like to add to that, just like Mike's saying, I think the fundamental question for me for Container Store is: Is this a commodity product that they're selling? Um, as Mike points out, they're not running the business like a commodity. They're, they're trying to train their sales force with all this training. They're trying to make sure that the customer experience is, is really good and doing a lot of, of, of noble things, I think. But at the end of the day, is that important to your customers that you have a really well-trained sales force, that you've, you're very knowledgeable about your product line, or is it just a trash can you're buying from the container store? <laughs> um, I, I can see this both ways. I've talked to some, some people that, you know, that did move into the D.C. area, and they, they hired the container store to come in and help them design you know, their, their bedroom mm -hmm. and uh, you know, all, all the, the aspects of, and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you know, it's to be, to be seen still for me of whether or not this is a commodity business or not. Sounds like we're struggling to figure out SodaStream and container stores' respective niches, and sounds like they are struggling as well. Mm -hmm. Holidays are coming up, guys. Are you more likely to buy a SodaStream or something from the container store? Maybe like one of their fancy closet systems or something like that. Um, I, I don't think either of them are in my future. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would first buy the SodaStream because I don't have a whole lot of closet space here in D.C. That's about right. right. All right. There uh, we go. Better answer. Um. <laughs> <laughs> More honest answer. Uh, let's jump into the mailbag real quick. A very timely question from one of our listeners. Uh, he writes, Hi, can you do a story on what happened today with GTAT or GT Advanced Technologies? The stock oh, can was we? down. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, we can. Uh, the stock was down after it not it was not used for the iPhone 6, but today it basically collapsed. How can a company that seemed to be doing okay in a volatile industry go south so quickly? And that's from Bill, listener number negative 89 in honor of GTAT's descent today. 89% drop. Uh, I think it was actually a little higher than that by the time the market closed. Today, it's back up a bit. But I, I, I'm, I'm a little confused about this. So, GTAT, for our listeners out there, uh, is the company that makes those Sapphire screens. It was very uh, heavily rumored that those screens were going to be used in the iPhone 6, and they're not going to be. And GT Advanced Technologies just it sank like a stone after that. There wasn't too much else going on for the company. Was that really enough to send it into bankruptcy, though? Or, or what's going on with this company? Do you want this time? <laughs> Mike, this one's all yours. So, yeah, I think, I think the, the, real, uh, the real lesson here is you live by the sword and you die by the sword. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you don't want to invest in companies that have one very powerful com uh, customer unless they're equally able to disrupt their customer's business. Right. And in this circumstance, 
um, GTAT simply didn't have that that degree of influence over Apple. Um, it was sort of widely accepted that these screens were going to end up in the iPhone 6, but I don't think that many people really carefully read the agreement, which was to say that there were several elements which indicated that use of these screens were entirely contingent upon them meeting certain standards, mm -hmm. quality, and being able to produce to a certain threshold. Uh, the other thing that's very interesting here is, um, and my my foolish colleague Evan New wrote a great piece for the front page on fool.com, which is that these guys, they didn't have any other customers. They didn't have any other revenue. And what they'd done was they basically had, Apple had given them what are called prepayments mm -hmm. on future product. And effectively speaking, it's a secured loan where they gave them you know, about half a billion dollars worth to construct these facilities. Mm -hmm. And so then when they didn't sell any product and they're not going to be selling any product for the foreseeable future, um, you are faced with a big problem when you only have $85 million cash in the bank and you have half a billion dollar loan to Apple. So uh, The math doesn't work out. Right. And that's, so well. and that's what happens. Uh, and that's when you decide you're going to declare bankruptcy right. and the stock is off 89%. Funny how that works. Uh, yeah. yeah. The one, uh, this is grasping at straws, obviously. The one thing in GT Advanced uh, Future is the Apple Watch. Supposedly, they're going to provide the screens for the Apple Watch. <laughs> Stop me if you've heard this one before, but GT Advanced is going to provide screens for an Apple product. Do we believe them now anymore? Or is this just them just trying to find some glimmer of hope in the future. Uh, you know, wh whether they are or they aren't, I don't think it really matters because <laughs> the common stock is going to be worthless. They're going into bankruptcy. You know, you look at the math right here. You've got, I mean, maybe maybe if you're a distressed investor, there's something interesting here. I haven't done enough math to go ahead and figure that out. Yeah. But you've got, you know, over $500 million in obligations, $85 million in the bank. Um, yeah, they might survive as a going concern, and we might see these guys again. But as if you're an investor, you're not interested in this. And moreover, you're not interested in this for a very, very discreet reason, which we said before. Mm -hmm. Any customer or any company which has only one customer needs to have as much power over that customer as they do over their own. And Certainly not the case here. No. Ouch. All right, uh, we've talked about a lot of stocks going down. Let's wrap things up with a stock that went up yesterday. Some good news. Yeah, CalAmp. And Simon, you mentioned CalAmp as a company you were watching on yesterday's show. Uh, it reported earnings after the close yesterday. Did pretty well. Uh, you know more about this company than I do, for sure. Uh, what did you like? And if there was anything, what didn't you like? Yeah, so uh, CalAmp is an active recommendation of Rule Breakers on our scorecard right now. Uh, market definitely liked their results. I, last I checked, stock was up about 24% oh, yeah. as of today off of a good earnings report. They hit the midpoint of revenue guidance and then topped out their earnings estimates. Um, a lot of the orders that they didn't get in the previous quarter actually came in this quarter, hmm. uh, which is a good sign that you know they didn't lose that business. There was a lot of heat that they were taking for, uh, for not getting those orders, but it's more timing-related than actually losing that business. But the thing that, that we really like about these guys is, is the Internet of Things, which is a remote hardware devices that transmit data um, through wireless networks and then is interpreted with software, continues to evolve and the take future. shape. Future 2000. The future. Um, <laughs> CalAmp is, is, is really going after some really big vertical markets, hmm. even as a very small company, and they're making some good progress in that. I'll highlight two of them here for the uh, for the time we have to talk about on the show. The first one is the heavy equipment market. They've got a relationship now with Caterpillar, the largest 
<clears throat> excuse me, the largest heavy equipment manufacturer in the world, um, that is exceeding their own guidance. They've now got over $10 million of revenue they're expecting in the second half of the year from Caterpillar as they're continuing to put uh, wireless routers on Caterpillar's machines to monitor performance. These are big, heavy equipment things. They cost a lot of money. When they fail, it costs Caterpillar a lot. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that they're running very smoothly. Right. And uh, they think that that's going very well and it's actually going to exceed their own forecasts. And the second thing is even even more than Caterpillar equipment out there is cars. Mm. There are apparently more cars in the world than there are Caterpillar machines. But usage-based insurance is something that's just now taking shape, too, where if you install CalAMP devices in your car, you can prove that you're a good driver, you have good driving behavior, you're not getting a direction, you're not slamming on the gas, um, like most DC drivers do around here. Yeah, I'm not putting that in my car. <laughs> you can actually get lower premiums from the insurance companies because it saves them on, on the uh, you know the payouts that would be required for that stuff. This is a very small piece of CalAMP's revenue right now, but it's growing at about 100% year over year, and they're expecting $16 million worth of full-year revenue from this. So two programs that are working very well for CalAMP, Small companies still, but I see them being much larger in a couple of years than they are today. Okay. And looking forward, next quarter, uh, so my question is basically going to com- come down to, is CalAmp lowballing its quarterly guidance? Because they said they were going to come in a little lower this quarter, knocked it out of the park, obviously. And looking forward at the next quarter, their their midpoints of their guidance ranges fall well below Wall Street's. Uh, are they... Are they lowballing, and they know they're going to have a great quarter? Are are things actually kind of slowly declining? Uh, what's going on here, yeah, Mark? We we need to take peripheral vision on this one. I think that there's too much short-term focus on the okay. Well, they missed last quarter. Oh, but then they got it back this quarter. Mm-hmm. You know, the stock shoots up ten percent, and then it's down twenty percent. Still today, this is this is at twenty times forward earnings. Mm-hmm. But that E in the in the denominator isn't even taken shape yet. I mean, if you if you crack the insurance market and you're only doing $2 million this quarter in that business, this could be several multiple times larger than that. So I think that if we take the long-term view on this, um, let's let's not look at the quarter to quarter. I still think there's there's huge potential in this company's proving that they're that they're hitting this in full stride. So right. I think it's a long-term buy still. Look at that. One buy. We got one. We got, we got one, one, guys. One out go. of four. Here we go. All right. Simon Erickson, Mike Olson. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by our very own Heather Horton. I'm Mark Reith. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.